If you thought we were in the uh, Christmas series, you were wrong. That's in two weeks. We get to be in Acts for two more weeks, which is exciting. And today is a family service, which I love uh, because I get to uh, dumb things down to my level. Um, so, kids, what is this? That's right. That's a cucumber. Cucumber. And what are these? What's the difference? They're the same. I'm hearing there's no difference. They're identical. Well, here's the thing. A cucumber is not very tasty. Um, I guess you put salt on it. You put it in a salad. I mean, you can do some things. But in general, well, it's a cucumber. But a pickle, a pickle is a converted cucumber. A pickle is a cucumber that's been baptized. Uh, There's actually a a recipe found from uh, the first century in Greek about how to make pickles, and it says you baptize a cucumber, so it's kind of a perfect illustration. But you baptize this cucumber in a vinegar solution, and it comes out something different. Now, can you turn a pickle back into a cucumber? You can't. Once it's a pickle, it's delicious, if it's dill. Um, But... Cucumber becomes a pickle because it's been converted. And and here's my question for you. Have you been converted? Not into a pickle. That'd be weird. Have you been converted to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And is being converted necessary? Are you a Christian because your parents are Christians? Are you a Christian because you grew up in the United States and, well, we're a Christian nation are you, are you a Christian because maybe you were baptized as a kid? You know, or you read your Bible some, or you, you go to a church. A lot of people you ask, are you a Christian? They're like, oh yeah, I go to such and such a church. And so they'll say they're converted because they go to a certain church. But what does the Bible actually say about conversion? And is conversion necessary? Well, we're going to be looking at Saul in Acts chapter 9. So grab your Bible, turn to Acts 9. If you need a Bible, there's some in the back uh, at home. Turn to Acts chapter 9. This is where we're going to be. And we're going to see the conversion of Saul. And we're going to ask the question as well, is conversion necessary? Because a lot of people nowadays will say conversion's not necessary. As long as you are, are uh, authentic in whatever you believe, you'll, you'll get to heaven. Or Jesus can be added into other beliefs. He can just be part of your, your pantheon, whatever but you don't actually need to be converted. Well, I'm going to tell you right here, and we're going to see this in Acts 9, conversion is necessary for salvation. Conversion is necessary for the new life God wants you to live. Conversion is necessary to go to heaven. The Bible talks a lot about heaven and hell. Jesus talked more about hell than about heaven because he doesn't want people to go there. But hell is a real place. And in order to avoid it, we need to be converted. So let's look at Saul, Acts 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So who is this guy Saul? We saw some weeks ago uh, the first martyr, Stephen. 
Stephen, who was a great servant in the Jerusalem church, was the first one killed for the Christian faith. Now here they call it the way. The way is now a cult, so we don't want to be called the way anymore. Um, but this is what they called the, the Christian movement at first was the way. They were first called Christians later in Acts in Antioch. But so here... Saul, who is a strong Jewish man, he is a Jewish leader, he is a Pharisee. Saul was kind of the cream of the crop when it comes to being a Jew. Uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Later we'll see him kind of give his, his testimony of why he was such a, a great Jew. Uh, but he came from a good lineage. Uh, he was, again, baptized or uh, circumcised on the eighth day. He trained under Gamaliel, who was a well-known uh, teacher, uh, he was also Roman. His dad was a Roman, so he was a Jew and a Roman citizen. That was somewhat unique. He was probably wealthy. He was very influential. This is Saul, and this is somewhat interesting. You know, this is one of those things that some, sometimes escapes us. Saul was really the driver of the persecution of the early church. Saul was there when Stephen was murdered. Not just was he there, he was the one holding people's coats while, while they went through the stones. So not only was he there and assenting, he was helping and as you see, I mean, he's going to be converted, and the persecution stops for a while in the church. He was the one driving it. He went to the high priest, and he said, hey, I'll get this done for you. Give me letters. I'm going to go to Damascus, and I'm going to find the Christians there, those part of the way, and then I'm going to bring them back here. Because when Stephen was killed, all the Christians fled, thousands. And we watched Philip and what God did through Philip. So he's going to go get them and bring them back. That's Saul. Uh, just a, a little... Teaser, looking forward, Saul is going to later go by the name Paul, and he's going to write a good deal of our New Testament. So, but right here, he's a murderer and a persecutor of the church. So look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. So much here. First of all, notice when Saul is going on the way, bright light comes, falls to the ground, a voice, Jesus, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was Saul persecuting? The church. Saul was going after Jesus' followers. Not Jesus. Jesus had died, rose from the dead, and ascended. What does this mean? Jesus is saying, the church is me. My people are me. This is a great truth throughout Scripture. We are called the bride of Christ. We are called the body of Christ, which is why it is imperative that we are involved with the local body. And if you're watching online, I've seen the dots of where people are watching from, and they're all over the United States. We're called to be part of a local church body because that's what God has for us, because it is his body. We are his body, which is significant. And so he says, why are you persecuting me? But now back to conversion. You know, what happens to Saul here? Well, he's blinded. He's blinded. I think this is helpful. 
Because he's blinded. You know, a lot of times when God does things, he, he does them in somewhat symbolic ways. He takes Saul, this strong, powerful, wise guy, and humbles him by blinding him. Now, he can't go anywhere without somebody helping him. In conversion, a person who thinks they see must recognize their own spiritual blindness. And this is a painful process, or can be. But think about it. Maybe think about your own conversion, or if you're not converted yet, maybe some of this is sticking out to you. But in order to really be converted, to come to Christ, we must recognize we've been doing it wrong. We must recognize some kind of lack in us, recognize our spiritual blindness. And I think there are probably three uh, blindnesses, however you would say that word, three areas of spiritual blindness that I think we can lump these in. The first one would be irreligious, an irreligious spiritual blindness. This is what our schools are teaching. You know, this is what's being pushed now, that evolution is true, you know, there is no God, Uh, we came from monkeys, you know, and all this, you know, there is no God, Uh, there were dinosaurs, and then an asteroid destroyed it, and then we evolved, I mean, whatever. There is no God, irreligious blindness. That what we see is all there is. It's all about science. That's one way. But yet, the Bible speaks very clearly, and Paul, who is Saul here, will later write, everybody knows there's a God. It's written in your heart, you know there's a God. You look at creation, and you know there's a God. And so God wants to bring light to that. Now, in this irreligious blindness, the person really is going to pursue sin for happiness. And I heard heard somebody say once that... uh, that a, a pastor was teaching and said, you know, sin will never f- satisfy you. And the guy was like, well, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> because sin does feel good. I mean, there are some good things about sin. I mean, it feels like there's good things, but the way is destruction. As the writer of Proverbs writes, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the way its end is destruction. And so we can pursue sin and get some of the things that we want. But you do that long enough, and ultimately it's not going to fulfill, and you're going to realize there's something missing. And that's when God can take that blindness and give you some light. Here's the second one, spiritual blindness. Now, this would be one where, you know, there, there is a God or there's something spiritual, but all roads lead to heaven. You know, as long as you, you are sincere in whatever you believe, you'll get there. Because if there's a God, and and there's probably one, then all he cares about is you being sincere. This has been, you know, more and more popular since the 60s. You know, those of you that remember the 60s, I don't. Um, But when kind of Eastern thought was brought in, the the Eastern mysticism of of Hinduism and Buddhism and, and, and those things, and you could just grab beliefs and add them together. You know, Paul, Saul, you know, there's a lot of stories about Saul after he's converted. He will encounter this later on Mars Hill where he's speaking to some some Romans, some Greeks, and they've got all these idols set up. And they want to hear about this Jesus so they can take him and add him into their their pantheon. Well, people want to do that. People will claim to be very spiritual. Oh, tell me about Jesus. Let, Let me hear about the Bible so I can just add it in. Whereas the truth is the Bible claims to be exclusive. Jesus claims to be the only way to be saved, not one among many. He wants to be Lord of all, not just one among some. And then here's the third, religious blindness. This one might be the most difficult, religious blindness. And this is probably what Paul, I would say Paul has this one here, religious blindness, meaning you're right with God through your good works. And if you've grown up in church, you might struggle with this. You know, God's going to like me more if I I work hard. He's going to love me more if I do good things, you know, or follow all the rules, religious blindness. Here's what this leads to. 
it leads to mean people. Or it leads to depressed people. Because if you think God, you're right with God by what you do, either you're going to fail a lot and just live in depression about that. Or you're going to think you're doing pretty good and you're going to be proud and look down on the rest of us. You know, and so here this creates kind of mean people. You know, Paul here, he's not evil, but he's kind of mean. He, he's trying to follow God, but he's kind of a mean person. And what we need in any of these is the light to come on. We need to recognize our blindness spiritually. And it can be painful. Uh, in Acts 26, Paul is going to, he, here he's speaking to a king, and he's telling his testimony, and he says this about this situation. He says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So here in Acts, we get some of what was said, but not all of it. Paul says later, this voice, Jesus said, why do you kick against the goads? What, what's a goad? Well, this was, you know, a rural area. There's a lot of farming going on. And when an ox would be pulling a plow. And it's going along, and you want a nice straight furrow. The person behind would have a stick, a pointy stick called a goad. And they'd poke him <laughs> to make him go. And, and if the ox was, was uh, stubborn, he'd try and kick back at it. And the whole point is, it's not going to get you anywhere. You're just going to tire yourself out trying to kick. You know, the guy behind, he can poke you. He might poke you more if you kick at him. He says, why are you kicking against the goads? That's an interesting thing to say. Why are you fighting against me, basically? It kind of hurts, doesn't it? And here's what I think this is telling us, that Saul's conversion wasn't necessarily, I mean, it's at a moment in time, but it wasn't completely in a moment in time. God had been doing some things. He had been poking Saul a little bit, and Saul had been kicking back. No, I'm going to do it my way. No, I'm going to keep following the religion. Saul is probably about Jesus' age. So when Jesus was doing his ministry, Saul knew about it. It wasn't a large area. He heard about Jesus' miracles. He heard about his teaching. He heard when, when Jesus said things like, you Pharisees are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're dead. He heard these things, and some of it probably pricked him. Like, oh, that aligns with the Old Testament that I know really well. Or when he was holding the, the, the coats, watching Stephen be murdered, what did Stephen say right as he died? You know, Father, don't hold this sin against them. Who could say something like that about their murderers? Saul watches this, and you know there's a piece of him that goes, oh, there's something unique about that Stephen guy. So God had been poking him a little bit, and here's what I want to ask you. Has God been poking you a little bit? Are there some things that he's been putting in your life like, hey, it's me. <laughs> I love you. I died for you. And you're just like, no. <laughs> you know, my way. I'm going to do it my way. La, 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 la. I'm not listening. I'm going to do it my way. I think that's this picture. Listen, if God is pursuing you, stop fighting him, surrender, and receive grace. It's all about grace. Paul doesn't deserve this. Neither do you. Neither do I. It's grace because he does the work. You know, again, his first thought probably when he's converted here is, I killed Stephen. Oh my goodness, Stephen was right. I was behind that murder. I mean, think about that. How that weight would just fall on you. Well, listen, this is in your notes too. When you understand God's grace, you realize that your past does not disqualify you. Amen to that. If we were you know, a good old Baptist church, I'd have a lot of amens coming at that one. Your past does not disqualify you. God knows everything you did. And he goes, I love you and I died for you. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. I know what you did. 
Even though you did it in the dark, you thought you were hiding, nobody else knows, I know. But it does not disqualify you. And so when we recognize our blindness, then God can give us sight. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. In a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Listen, conversion is necessary for salvation. Saul here is converted. The scales fall away. He gains spiritual sight. He's then baptized. He receives the Holy Spirit. He is converted. And then his life begins to change. Some things happen at conversion. Now, how is somebody converted? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it right there. You believe Jesus is the only way. He's the Son of God. He died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended, and you say, and you are Lord of my life. Converted. Boom. That's how it happens. But then... 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. At conversion, something happens. We don't just become better. We don't just become forgiven. We become new, something different. The Old Testament looked forward to this and said, I'm going to take their heart of stone. I'm going to take it out, put a heart of flesh in there. Something happens, something miraculous, something real a cucumber becomes a pickle. Conversion, <laughs> baptism becomes something different. And then things start to change. Uh, now, when we started this, or before we actually started the Acts series, Preston told me, he said, I, I've got kind of a testimony around uh, the book of Acts because this concept here was significant in Preston's life. Uh, so I actually shared him to share about this point in the, in the text. So Preston, if you would come kind of share your testimony and, and how God did this with you. Don't forget to turn your mic on. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. Uh, yeah, I did ask uh, Derek to, to share uh, my, my testimony uh, that, that's uh, centered around Acts. Uh, and out of the wisdom of Derek and God together, uh, I'd asked to do it at the first. And... Now I realize it's really appropriate for me to be here today because of all the first six or seven chapters, eight chapters that we've been going through. So, stretch of imagination, picture me at 20 years old. 
And uh, so I'm, I'm in college, and I, I am, uh, meet this couple, and they lead me to church. I go to church, and I actually accepted Christ as, as, as my Lord. But then, and this wasn't a very long time, I'm in college, I graduate, and I go to Atlanta, and then from there on, it's all about career. It's all about success. It's all about accumulating the things of the world. And it's amazing how blinded I became to the point that truly um, it led to a lot of brokenness. It led to a lot of pain in family members and people around me because of my neglect and my self-centeredness. And I was truly a very self-centered person. So now you can fast forward. So I just endured that is really what happened. I went through life uh, on my own. And uh, it was not pretty. But now fast forward another 20 years. And I'm, in my, I'm 40. And I'm working on an assignment. And I'm gone out of town two weeks at a time. So about the second or third you know, a month of that, I got tired of going to dinner with people. So I go back to the hotel room by myself, and I'm like, okay, you know, enough TV, this and that. So I reach out, and I get a Gideon Bible. I pull it out, and I can tell you many times I have attempted to read the Bible and put it down. I just couldn't understand it. For whatever reason, not of whatever reason, through the Holy Spirit, I begin <laughs> to read this Bible. Now, this is a... King James Bible, not easy to read. But I began to understand, and God began to draw me into it. So I read and read, and then I went through the Gospels. And at the Gospels, God was pricking me. He was poking me a lot. I was getting convicted about things and trying to get deeper understanding. And so I struggled with that for a few days. And then I got into the book of Acts. And when I got into the book of Acts, I'm in chapter 1, and I read about the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And then I go to chapter 2, and I see Peter, who I've just been reading about uh, in the Gospels, and he is, he's been bold, but he's, but he's, he's kind of awkward, and he's, he, he's inconsistent, but now he <laughs> speaks with authority. He speaks with clarity. He speaks... Of, of prophecies and the impact on the crowd is conversion and many people seeing the truth and the understanding. So I'm, God pricks me one more deeper level. And then I go to the next chapter and I see where Peter and John have converted, have, have healed a lame person. And I see the Pharisees or the religious leaders confronting them. And then I see them with boldness and strength and clarity. And they are articulating the gospel truth of Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Son of God, to these same people that had, what? Just crucified Jesus. Did they back down? No. They were bold and clear. So I'm telling you, at that point, I began to realize, and I heard a word from God that said, Preston, believe. Mm -hmm. 
I truly fell down on my knees in this hotel room, and I asked God for forgiveness, and then to give me deeper understanding. And I began to say, Lord, just help me. And then I continued to read in Acts, and I read about Stephen. And then Stephen, it's amazing what Derek said and then what I experienced. I began to understand because at first I'm like, well, it's John and Peter. And then I began to understand, whoa, this is a layman. This is an average person that God has called and, and the grace that he showed, the, the understanding and the power of the Holy Spirit in him. I just got down on my knees again and I asked God, I want to be like that. And I asked God to help me. I continued to read and read. And I, I guess, you know, I'll just stop with this from but to pause and, and say a couple of things. One, you may have wandered, but God is pursuing you, and God is prodding you. I just encourage you to respond and to listen and to pray and ask God to reveal himself to you more and more. I also, uh, what Derek just got through saying, my past did not keep me from being fully redeemed and fully used by God. I truly committed my life at that point, and I have never looked back. I've gone forward hand in hand with God through reading my Bible and through prayer and through participating in my church, and I've never looked back. My life has been somewhat has been redeemed. There's still a little pain and things from my past, but Going forward, God is using me in many, many ways, and I just praise him for that and thank him for redeeming me. So I just wanted to share that with you. As we go through Acts and continue, as we've gone through Acts, even go back, pray, read, but understand Jesus is real. The Holy Spirit is real. And when you accept Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Well, Preston, you led into the next point really well. The good news is that your future is not determined by your past. You know, uh, it was a couple years ago that I was in Starbucks preparing for a sermon uh, Sunday morning, and, and Preston and Linda come in, and they order their coffee, and they see me reading the Bible, and, and I think they heard me talking to the guy in the chair next, and they came up, and they said, do you know any good churches around? I'm like, well, shoot. I, <laughs> you know, and we got talking, and they said, God is bringing us to Carson City. And I said, why? I said, we don't know why. Well, now I know why. Uh, they have been greatly used here and are continuing to be greatly used here. But, but that, they're an example, and Paul here is a great example. Paul will start going by the name Saul. Or, I'm sorry, Saul will start going by the name Paul. The word Paul means little, small. Uh, so he, he goes from this big, proud, strong guy to this one who will say things, you know, like, I'm the worst of sinners. And thanks be to God, you know, th that he can forgive even me. It's all about grace. But listen, when you are converted, your life will change. Your life will change. You know, I wanted to close this sermon uh, by reading a little bit from the voyage of the Don Treader. Ever heard this in a sermon before? Didn't think so. Okay. Well, I recommend reading the book. 
but, but th this book was written by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest Christian thinkers, I think, of the 20th century. Uh, he wrote some great uh, nonfiction books, but he also wrote some great fiction books. A lot of them are fantasy, and they have a, a blend of Christianity through it. You can see God. And so uh, in, well, in one of his other books, uh, C.S. Lewis writes about his own conversion. And when he was converted, he was, he was older, he was in his 20s, and he came really kicking against the goads. He said, I came to Christ kicking and screaming. I didn't want it to be true. He was an atheist, he was against it, but he was convinced and he gave his life to Christ. And so he said he was one of those that just kind of got drug along, or God knocked him on the, on the street like he did with Saul. And in The Voyage of the Don Treader, there's a story. There's a, a character named Eustace. And he's kind of a little jerk, really. He's the cousin of the main characters, and he's just, he's a punk, he's nasty, whatever. And in the book, he turns into a dragon. You know, he slips, he finds the dragon's lair, he slips a gold ring on his leg, uh, or on his arm, whatever it was, um, and he turns into a dragon. And now he's flying around, and he can't talk, and he tries to convince them, hey, it's me, Eustace, but he can't talk, so he breathes the fire. Anyway, it's really cool. Um, but he doesn't want to be a dragon. And so in the story, it shows how he is turned from a dragon back into a boy. And that is really C.S. Lewis, he's writing in fictional form his own conversion process. And he puts it in such a beautiful way. So I want to read when Eustace turns back into a boy and how this works. Because again, this is him saying it in a creative way. This is what conversion for me was like. And this might be what conversion for you is a little bit like. Now in the story, there's Aslan. Aslan is a lion. You know, he's strong. He's not tame. And he, in all of these stories in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan represents Jesus. And so in this story, the lion is Aslan who represents Jesus. So let me just read this piece of it. Aslan comes along, grabs the, the, the dragon, and takes him up to this pool. And here's Eustace speaking as the dragon. He says, the water, he's telling the story later to his cousin. It says, the water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like if I were a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was, as I was going to put my foot into the water, I looked down, and I saw that it was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as it had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath, uh, underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of that too. So I scratched and I tore again. This underskin peeled off beautifully, and I stepped out of it, lying beside the other one, and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg, so I scratched away for the third time. And I got out of a third skin, just like the two before. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. 
but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling my skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab of a sore place, it hurts like billy-o, but it's so fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but somehow or other, he did it in new clothes. You know, that's such a beautiful picture of conversion. You know, so often we come kicking and screaming, and we want to undress ourselves. We want to fix ourselves. But the gospel says, stop trying. Come to me. I'll fix you. I'll clean you up. I will clothe you. What a picture. And that's grace. I mean, look at the way Paul is converted. Grace. It's not by works. It's by grace. God does all the work. And so as we move to worship now, have you been converted? Have you surrendered to Jesus as Lord? And have you let him change you? And so, like Preston was saying, even after conversion, sometimes we can kind of kick against him, him changing us. But it's him that puts on the new clothes. And so we surrender to him. So as we worship, if you need to surrender to Jesus for the first time, I'm going to be in the back. Come pray with me. If you're watching online and today is the day, fill out the form right there or, or put it in the Facebook notes that you want to be converted. Today is the day. All you have to do is believe in your heart that God was raised from the dead. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for the grace that you've given us. For by grace we are saved. We thank you, thank you, thank you. God, if anybody in here needs to turn to you to be converted, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And God, for the rest of us, if maybe we've been fighting our sanctification, the process where you want to change us and make us to be like Jesus, if we're fighting against that, God, I pray that we would just surrender. I like the picture of Eustace. He stopped and he just laid there. God, that's us. We want to stop and let you change us. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.